The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn there to Revelation chapter 3. And our study today brings us to the sixth of the seven churches of Asia. And this is the church in the city of Philadelphia, also one of the ancient cities of, the, of Asia Minor. Seven cities were in Asia Minor. Each of them had a church, and letters were written to them by the Lord. Now, there were many other churches in existence at that time, many throughout Asia Minor, but these seven churches and these particular seven cities are chosen to reflect the spiritual condition of all churches in that time and up to the time that we live in today. These churches were spread in a circuitous route to be visited with a message from God, a messenger from God that spoke to the spiritual condition that is found in each of those churches. Now, some of the churches had the same problems but each seemed to have a unique problem that needed to be dealt with. Sometimes the church would take over the character of the city in which they were in, and since these cities were, these ancient cities were very wicked places, often the Lord would find that there was wickedness in the church that was reflected by wickedness of the city. Before this Philadelphia church, we talked about the church at Sardis, and their church was in a city that was once the capital of a great empire, but that empire had long ago been defeated, and the city was dying, and Jesus used that connection of a dying city to teach how the church in that city was also dying. In Thyatira, one of the other cities, uh, the economic structure of that city caused the persecution of the church. The economy was controlled by trade guilds, and each of these trade guilds had their own patron god. And so to curry favor with the trade guilds and to keep their jobs, Christians began to compromise with paganism, and they accepted the, the heathen culture that was around them. Now, each of these churches reflects the failures of modern churches. In every age of church history, there have been churches like these, and since the Lord intended that these letters would be timeless and they would be a place that we could go to to evaluate our standing with Him when we fall into the same types of failures, since these are intended to be timeless letters, they must cover a wide variety of issues. They must cover doctrinal issues, social ones, economic ones, personal spiritual growth problems, and so it is at this juncture that the modern and the ancient meet, and we must find ourselves characterized by one or more of these churches in Revelation. And of all the churches that we've studied, including the one that's to come next that we haven't yet reached, this church in Philadelphia is the one that we want to be our model. We want to model ourselves after this church. And you may ask, why? Why would we? Well, because this is the blessed church. This is the church that the Lord examined, and He said, carry on. You're doing my will. You're doing my work. I find you to be blameless, and you are the church that I intended my church to be. And I'm happy that we're able 
to come to this church today because we talked about so many problems of these churches in the past and now we have the opportunity to look at a good church, a good, solid church that was following the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the difference in this church and four of the others. Christ has no warnings for this one. Christ has no complaints against them, but rather there are commendations and there's commitment that He will give them further instructions and He will charge them with greater responsibilities to do His work. They were faithful people. They were faithful in a few things that they had been given. So now the Lord says, I'm going to make you stewards over more. This church is also known as the missionary church. In verse number 8, they are the church that has an open door of opportunity with the gospel. In verse number 10, they're the church that is reserved. And in verse 12, they're a church that's promised to be made a sure foundation. And that's the church that we aspire to be. Not because the Lord said it directly to this church. Not because He says, well, you're such a great church. And not because He said, you are the apple of my eye. He doesn't say that in so many words. Because He doesn't threaten to withdraw from them as He did the others. That's His method of commendation for this church. He promises to be more involved with them. To let them do more of His work. And He will enable them. And He will entrust them with the kingdom of David, as He says in the text, by taking that key of David and unlocking all the doors of the treasures of our Lord God. Now, when the Lord gives greater responsibility, it's because He has approved of our past faithfulness. And it's because this church proved itself worthy, that proved itself to be faithful servants of the Lord, that He will give them more responsibility. They're like the servant in Matthew 25. Jesus described this servant, he says, His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And so because they were faithful, the Lord said to this Philadelphia church, I will give you more. And he said, I will make you to rule over many things. They will be a temple and the pillar of God. They will receive God in the present. And they're also promised future blessings in His millennial kingdom. Well, let's turn our attention to the text. <clears throat> the letter begins in chapter 3, verse number 7. This is the message of the Spirit of Christ to the church at Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. 
And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. In our study of each of these churches, there hasn't really been a need to depart from the basic outline of each of these letters. The outlines that I've used, that I've made for myself to teach these letters to you, have different points, but all of them follow the same basic structure. They follow the author's pattern of commendations, of rebukes, of corrections, and promises. But this letter is a little bit different. It begins a little bit differently than the others. It still has that beginning description of the author who is Jesus Christ, but the description doesn't come from chapter number 1, where all the other previous letters receive their description of Jesus. For example, in the Ephesian letter, in chapter 1, the description is of stars and candlesticks. In the Smyrna letter, it was the first chapter's comment about Christ being the first and the last. In the letter to Pergamos, it was the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of chapter 1, verse number 16. In Thyatira, it's eyes as a flame of fire and feet that are like fine brass, and you find that same description in chapter 1. And then in the Sardian letter, he mentions seven spirits and seven stars. Once again, the description is found in chapter 1. And each of those descriptions are magnificent. There is no one who is like Jesus Christ. But then we come to this letter, and the pattern is broken. There, there's a new description, one that's not yet been mentioned, and it's almost as if the Lord waits to give this church in Philadelphia its own special vision of Him. This one is more glorious, as if it could be greater than what's already been said. And it takes us back into the Old Testament where Jehovah God is revealed as the supreme Lord of heaven and earth. That He is the Creator. That He is God who is the ruler. That He is the God of His people Israel. He is God above all. He's the God that put the yoke upon that man Pharaoh. He made Pharaoh and all of his gods bow before him. He trounced every God that they worship by bringing a plague that attacked all of their pretended realms of power. And make no mistake about this, that Jesus identified himself as that same God who is in the Old Testament who forced the subordination of all other gods unto him. Now we're reminded, we're reminded of what uh, Paul said in Philippians, that every knee shall bow before Jesus Christ and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord. And not just men, Paul says also principalities above and beneath the earth, they will all bow to Jesus Christ. And so we begin our outline today with this affirmation of Jesus Christ and that is the omnipotence of Him, the omnipotence of Christ. And today, perhaps more than any Sunday in this series about the churches, my thoughts go towards the mightiness to the power of Jesus Christ. And I'm more impressed by the omnipotence of Jesus today than at any other time, I think, that I've taught this. Our country and its politicians and even our churches, all the talking heads mock God at every turn. But there's one thing that permeates the teaching ministry in Berean Baptist Church. It is that we recognize the power, the authority, and the sovereignty 
of Jesus Christ. And I don't mean that those are just words that are in our mouths. It's not that we just claim we believe God's sovereignty and then with very little subtlety we exalt man above the will of God. Now folks, we preach against sin because that denies the power and the authority of Christ. And we preach the mighty conquest of the unwilling heart through the power of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the Word of God. And we preach that it is the Holy Spirit who can regenerate lost sinners and change their stubborn will to conform to God's will. We don't mince words about His deity. We'll not bow to popular theories of societal order. We'll not allow a pass on the confusion of the sexual revolution. We don't yield to politically correct opinions. And we don't because God doesn't. We're His church. We are His people. We've been bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ, and He is our Lord and our King. And so how will our church be entrusted with authority in His kingdom? How will we be the church that Christ says, You have been faithful, now you're going to serve me in greater ways. I'm going to make you ruler over many things. How will that happen unless we're a church that marches under the banner of Christ? How will it happen unless we're a unified body of believers? And how will that happen unless we are the same mind and the same spirit? Unless we are the church of one Lord, one faith, and one baptism? And we must be a body together. And without working together, we'll not get the charge that we find in verse number 9. And we'll not get the protection found in verse number 10. And we'll not get the status that's in verse 12. Now, those are great verses. I'm anxious to get to all of that, and we will as we proceed through the series. But I'm happy today to stay right here at the beginning to examine the description of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is foundational understanding of God. It was established in the Old, in the first revelations of God in the Old Testament. This is the understanding of Jesus Christ as the pre-incarnate God and that's the undergirding of the church. It's to see Jesus Christ as one and the same as the sovereign God who is in the Old Testament. All things are in Him and through Him and by Him. By Him, the Word of God says, all things consist. And so we have one purpose in this church, and that is to glorify Jesus Christ. And if it does not glorify Christ, we don't want anything to do with it. Because we preach Christ. Now, I know that there are some in the church who say, well, the church is, it, it exists for the purpose of winning souls. So you can dispense with all of the doctrinal stuff, and you don't need to talk about those things. Preach salvation and then be done. We don't disagree that the church has an evangelistic commission. We preach to win souls. But our purpose in winning souls it's not that they might receive, the main purpose is not that they receive the personal benefit of escaping hell. We preach Christ to people because He deserves to be glorified by more people. Christ deserves glory. And the purpose of their salvation is to glorify Him. And because souls must glorify Christ, we reject, we deny any who say that people that are not made different, that don't act differently, that don't appear differently, that don't show a work of regeneration in their heart through obedience to Jesus Christ, we deny that they are the true people of God. 
And because there must be evidence of our salvation, Paul wrote, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. Ah, but there are some who claim Christ and they have no evidence. Perhaps many claim Christ, but there is no evidence. And I would seriously doubt my salvation if I was, if I was content to consistently absent myself from the fellowship of God's people. You cannot glorify Christ without obedience. Now in the Old Testament, God commanded obedience. And He stamped all of His commandments with solemn warnings. Now since the Old Covenant, we believe, is inferior to the New, then how much more does the New Covenant demand that we obey Christ? Do we have a hint in the first chapter where it says that Jesus has flaming eyes of fire and feet like the fine brass that are burned in a furnace? That's all about judgment. And is the judgment of God greater upon us in this New Testament era because of the New Covenant and because we have better understanding of who Christ is Aren't we more responsible to obey Jesus Christ? And so while we rejoice in the grace that's found in the New Testament, we are never to forget the obedience of both the Old and the New Covenants. Now, in this seventh verse of our text, there is a description of Christ that has Old Testament flavoring. Some people don't believe the Old Testament is necessary for the church. Today, we live under the New Covenant. We no longer live under the old, so it's not significant. Well, I remember when I became pastor 15 years ago, I began the preaching ministry here with about half of the sermons that I preached from the Old Testament and half from the New. And there was a member that was disturbed by this, and this member came to me and said, why are you preaching so much from the Old Testament? We don't need the Old Testament any longer. We're living in the New Testament times. And I would say that a person who says that is not a good student of the New Testament because you won't be unless you read the Old Testament. You'll not understand Jesus. You'll not understand Paul. You'll not understand any of the authors in the New Testament unless you have an Old Testament background. And why is that true? Because Jesus is in the Old Testament. And you don't want to fall into the error of those who say Jesus was created or that Bethlehem, the birth in Bethlehem, is the first that we ever see of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Oh, Jesus is through and through the Old Testament. And if you don't think so, then you've missed more information about Christ than you'll find in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is eternal God. And I find that, that truth, in the very first statement that he makes to this church. In verse number 7, These things saith he that is holy. Christ is God because only God is holy. I know that he is omnipotent because he is holy. That's first. And that's where we're going to spend all of our time today. We'll spend our time with this. Christ's character of holiness. Now, to receive the instructions of this letter with proper obedience to the authority of it, you must know the author. You must know his authority before you will accept this message as binding. And if you wonder why 
that people out there in the world today, why is the message of Jesus Christ rejected by the world? It's because of this. They don't know his character and they don't know his authority. Jesus begins here with an affirmation of God's chief attribute that he is holy. Do you understand what it means to be holy? I'm not sure that many do, even though we multiply the usages of that word holy in our preaching. Some use the word holy to smear others and mock them. It's an affront to some if you say to them, well, you're just too holy. And there are Christians that will brag, or people that say they're Christians, and they say, I'm no saint. And that means the same as, I'm not holy. Isn't that amazing? I've heard people, church people, complain that another member in the church is too holy. They're just too good. And, and they mock another church member because that church member, according to their thinking, is just overly concerned about sin. They don't act like me. They're just too holy. Is that a dreadful thing? Can we too much wrap ourselves up in the obedience of Christ to be more like Him? That's upsetting. One person is uncomfortable with another because that person is too unholy. He's too unlike Him. He doesn't live like Him. He doesn't talk like Him. He doesn't act like Him. His character is different because that person is holy. And fundamentally, that's exactly what the word holy means. It's the word, the Hebrew word is kodesh. The, the Greek word is hagios. The root word, it's the root word for sanctification, which means to be set apart. It is to be different. And so fundamentally, the Bible says that God is holy. It means that He is different. Examine God and examine me and you, and God is different. Now the big question is, how is He different? Well, the crux of the meaning is that God is infinitely different. Name any category that you want, and any place that it touches God, He's different. Especially in this, that God is morally different different. He is without sin. He is blameless. He's infinite in goodness and righteousness. He never makes mistakes. He never thinks a wrong thought. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God's motives are always pure. He's the standard of perfect holiness. He never deviates from it. He can never drift from that absolute standard. So if you ask, is there anything that God can't do? Well, He can't do this. He can't be unholy. He's always holy. Jehovah God in the Old Testament is holy. Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6 is perhaps definitive of God's holiness. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. I think this is the third time in as many weeks as we've had the opportunity to read from this chapter. Isaiah saw a vision of God sitting on the throne. Oh, I think that Isaiah and Moses are the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, and both of them had visions of God. The privilege of meeting with God is not common, and it never was. And Isaiah was able to meet with God. He saw God in chapter 6. This is what he wrote. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. 
With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. On the throne Isaiah saw God high lifted in glorious splendor. There were angelic creatures that surrounded and attended the throne, and these creatures are the seraphim. And it's their function to guard the holiness of God. They warn anyone who's about to enter that throne room. And what do they say as they honor God on the throne? Well, they don't say that God is just, even though God is just. And they don't say that God is good, even though God is good. And they don't say that God is righteous, even though He is righteous. They say, holy Holy, holy. God is thrice holy. You ever heard that term? God is thrice holy, the thrice holy God. That means all of His attributes are summed up in this glorious acclaim of holy, holy, holy. And how else might you, might, might you say that? God is different, different, different. God is different. He's infinitely apart, infinitely higher than us. Now you can stay here in Isaiah for just a minute. John saw a similar vision in the Revelation, just one chapter over from our text in chapter 3. In the fourth chapter, in verse 8, John says, I saw beast in heaven. Now that's unfortunate for modern readers, for modern speakers. That's an unfortunate translation because beast sounds like animals of ignorance or whatever. It sounds like brute ignorance. But these are not ignorant creatures that John sees. These are heavenly living creatures of more wisdom than you and I can fathom. They're full of eyes which signify wisdom. And they are the same as those ones that we just read in Isaiah 6. Here in Revelation 4.8 it says, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. God is holy. There's none like him. God is different. Now, return to Isaiah chapter 6 and his vision. And what does he say about this holy God? What does he say the next thing? Verse number 5, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you see what Isaiah tells us? Isaiah said, he's different from me. I'm undone. And if you want a translation of that, he says, I'm dumbfounded. I can't speak. I don't know what to say. Doom is on my head. He goes on to say, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm different from him. I'm not righteous. I'm not good. I am not just. I am not holy. God is, but I am not. Now friends, that's what I'm here to tell you about God. You, you may think that you're good, and you may think that your opinions are good, but you're not and they're not. And you may think that you're okay and with your slight flaws, if there are any, they're all inconsequential. You may even think that you're qualified to speak to God, that you can come into the presence of God any time that you choose and talk with God. But you know your problem? You have no idea who God is. You've not seen him with natural eyes or with the, or with the eye of faith. You don't know how far different that God is when you think that way. 
Those who have seen Him say, I'm undone. I can't speak in the presence of such exalted holiness. And who are those that have seen God in that way? Well, they are the ones whose blinded eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit opens the eyes, that vision of God is so stunning that it's like coming out of a pitch black room, out of a darkened cave where there is no light, and coming into the brightness of the sun at noonday. And what do you do when that happens? You shield your eyes, you bow your head, you escape the sizzling pain of the light. Isaiah thought, something bad's going to happen to me because I've seen God. I deserve to die. Judgment will fall on me because I have so badly missed the holiness of God. And so you must see God as Isaiah saw Him before you will be saved. Will you have the opportunity to see Him with physical eyes? No, but in your heart, you'll receive a new understanding. God is different, and you're unworthy. So you'll not touch a self-help book. This will make me better. And you'll not bow down to the nonsense of self-esteem. That's not Isaiah. Isaiah wrote, there's no help for me. I'm undone. I have no potential. Have you heard that? People want to talk about how much potential you have. You have no potential. Potential comes from the word power. And only God is potent. Only God is powerful. Only God gives life and breath to all creatures. Only God is holy. And you're different from Him. If you receive any power, that power comes from God. And when we talk to people about the gospel, we need to go straight to this issue of their helplessness we need to take them to their fallenness and show them they are too far different from God to have any hope of approaching Him. And so when they see Him, they must realize the one who confronts them and say, Woe is me! And it's in that response that they've seen the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't have time today to develop this thought, but I want to run it by you. Three times in Isaiah 6, the seraphim said, Holy Holy, holy. Three times. Isn't once sufficient? No. Most believe this is a reference to the triune God, that this is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each is holy. And right there is the purpose for Jesus to say, I am holy. Why? Because God is holy. Because God and only God is holy. And this author of the letter who writes to the church says to them, I am holy because I am God. That's the claim of Jehovah God in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40 verse 25, To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. Who is equal to God? He's different. Jesus can't say, I'm holy, unless he says, I'm God. And then there's Psalm 16 with this remarkable reference to the resurrection of Christ. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. He's the Holy One. And Jesus wrapped all of those first chapter descriptions of himself into one big package to say that he is holy because he is God. And I can tell you, I don't want to mess with that. 
I, 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 I don't want to be trifling with Jesus Christ. I don't want to come into this body of Christ today and be flippant about Jesus. A few weeks ago, I was preaching on Sunday morning. Kirsten, sitting over here with her mom, wasn't feeling very well. And that's not Kirsten now, that's Hannah over there. I recognize Hannah. But uh, Kirsten was sitting over here with uh, Nancy. And Kirsten got sick, and so Nancy and Kirsten got up, and she was, they were going to go out, and she had to take Kirsten home. And afterwards, Nancy was very apologetic to me because she felt that she had disturbed the service. Now, these are her words, not mine. She said it was too obvious, two six-foot blondes trying to sneak out of the service from all the way over here. So she worried that I was distracted by that. And why did she think that way? Why would she worry that me up here preaching that I'd be distracted or you'd be distracted from the hearing of God's Word? It's because she didn't want to take attention away from it. Because the Word that's being spoken here is the Word that comes from the Holy God. And I told her, no, I'm not distracted. That's okay. And it's a good thing that I can concentrate Otherwise, there were many times I'd just go over here and sit down in this chair by some of the things that I see going on Sunday morning, and I'd have to gather my thoughts for a little bit. But thank God I can concentrate. But there are some things that do bother me when I'm preaching the Word. I get by them, I get past them, and I continue to preach. And I suppose if I'm bothered by anything the most, or the thing I'm bothered by the most, it's the sleepers. I understand if you're not feeling well, maybe you took some medicine before you came to church and you couldn't help it, and so you come to church and you think, well, it's better for me to sit in church and sleep than it is to sit at home and sleep, and I'm okay with that if, that's, if you think that way, because maybe you'll have a holy dream while you're here, so that might work. But the ones that really bother me are the ones that are consistent sleepers. It's every week they're sleeping. They have very little interest in the Word of God, not enough to stay awake. Now, there are some that I see who sit on the edge of the seat, waiting for the next thing that they can hear about God, while others are on their cell phones, and they're checking the football scores, and they're sending texts. They're not paying any attention to what goes on. And Jesus will not come to that church and say to them, You are Philadelphia! You're faithful servants. You're privileged to, given, to be given more of my work because you are so enthusiastic about the work that I've already given. Do you believe that Jesus is holy? Do you have a vision of Christ on the throne so that He's speaking to you and you say, Holy, holy, holy? Do you know that there are some demons? There are demons, I should say, in general that have less respect for Christ than many Christians. Did you know that? Let's turn to Mark chapter 1, if you would. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is Christ in the beginning of his personal ministry. He's the incarnate God. He's the God who came in the flesh. And the Jews saw the flesh, but they didn't see him as God. Now I want you to look in Mark 1 and verse 21 where Jesus is preaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Jesus stood there and he opened up the Scriptures, the Holy Word of God, and see what happens in verses 21 through 24. And they went into Capernaum, 
And straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now you see that? The man had an unclean spirit. That means he has a demon. And who do you think would be most likely to deny that Jesus Christ is God? I would think it would be demons. I mean, demons, they're not, they, don't, they don't want to proclaim the power of God. They don't want to say Jesus is God. How's that going to help their cause? But what did this demon do in the presence of Jesus? Would he deny Christ? No. There is no demon that stands in the presence of Jesus Christ to say to him, You are not God. Oh, they must acknowledge him. And so the demon said, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Now notice the, the, that it's capitalized in your King James Version. The Holy One. And I think that fairly gives the sense. You are the Holy One. You are uniquely God. And there are some Christians who won't do what demons do. They'll not bow their head to Christ. Their life isn't what it should be. Who can even tell that they belong to Christ? They don't surrender to His Lordship. Now some may rebel for a time. I admit that we can rebel for a time. We may not show all the time that we're Christians. We're not perfect. We fall. So we don't always show that we're Christians. But I do not admit that the rebellion of a Christian can be prolonged. Continued rebellion is proof that their profession is false. And so if you find yourself in that place, the longer you go, the more evidence mounts against you. Are you a child of God if your confession of Jesus Christ is less than demons? And I can tell you where that leads. If you deny Christ in this life, He will deny you in the afterlife. And so you may fool yourself that you are a believer, but you can't fool God. In the Mosaic Law, God declared His holiness. He said, I am holy. And then He said, Be ye holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7, Sanctify yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Sanctify yourselves. And in that verse, there's a double emphasis. Sanctify, that means set yourself apart. Be different. And then he says, be holy. That's a double stamp. Be different, because I am your God, and I am different. And if you look in the Old Testament, and you see all the laws and the ceremonies, all the things about foods that they could and couldn't eat, all the sacrifices that are made, all of those things that go along with it, that seems so strange to us. Why did they do those things? And you know what's basically behind all of that? It's to show that Israel was different. They're the people of God. They're supposed to be different. Holiness is the character of your God, so be holy. Holiness is your sanctification. Now there's a sense in sanctification that when you receive Christ as your Savior, you're as holy as you're ever going to get. You could die right then and go to heaven. You will go to heaven if you die right then, if you believe in Jesus Christ, because you've been made holy enough to get there. 
But there's another sense of our holiness in which there is a daily application of that holiness. And that's the sense that we get in this text that you strive for God's approval so that you come to the day when He says, I see your work, I see your strength, I see that you have kept my word, I see that you've not denied my name, and because you have not, I count you faithful and I'll give you more. Now folks, that's what it takes. Daily striving for holiness to be Philadelphia. That's how our church gets to be that church. Now go back to the text. Look at verse number 8. It says, I know thy works. We ought to read that with a lump in our throats. The Holy One who is God and who is perfect said, I know your works. I think we ought to be a little bit nervous about that. He knows what we're doing. So to what will he compare those works? Those works will be measured by his standards, right? By his standards, not ours. That's how he tells whether they're his works. What other criteria is there than for God to judge by his own standard? But here we are, sitting in the pews. Few of us think that way. Uh, a few weeks ago I mentioned there was a fellow who wrote for me from, uh, from a church that's in the Midwest and he wanted to know about our standards. Somebody from their church was moving to this area in our community. And I suppose he wanted to know, does your church live up to our standards? I've been in churches like that. They have a list of rules that are their standards. They have rules for collars and rules for hemlines. So they have rulers for collars and hemlines. And their standard is their ruler. And to be okay, and to be right with them, then you have to make the mark on their ruler. I never want to be in the place where I judge how well I'm doing by how well I measure to you. I think there needs to be a higher standard than you. And so I think that I might want to look at the Lord's measuring stick to see how I'm doing there. And if I'm okay there, and he knows my works, and he approves, I think I'm safe, no matter what you say. Jesus said, I know your works. And these will be judged by his holiness. So if you don't get anything from the message today, get this. Jesus shows the one attribute of God that's most descriptive of his character. God is different. He's in a category all by himself. He is different. And the first word of the text that anchors our attention to what will be said in these later verses is this word, holy. And it's just a little word. It's not one of those big, long theological terms that you can barely say and you hardly know. It's a little word. But at the same time, it's one of the most profound words that's in the Bible. And how profound is this word? It is this profound that the Bible says, if you are not holy, you will not see God. Hebrews 12, 14. Now we didn't get too very, very, very far today in the text because that little word holy, we just kind of stumble over that, don't we? This word is too big for us. So I've just scratched the surface of what the Bible says about God's holiness. And God, or Jesus, used this word because He is God. And as God, He demands that we should strive for His character. And so to be Philadelphia... You must begin with holiness. This church did. There's no warning for it. 
because they're holy. They're ready to move on to greater responsibility because they're faithful in holiness to the word that they have already been given. Now, in this church, we will lift Christ. We will exalt His holiness. And how will we do that? Well, I'll try to do it myself by giving you a word from this pulpit that is different. I already know that you're not going to hear too many sermons like this one I've just preached today in churches that are out here in Roner Park in the Santa Rosa area. So I'll tell you, if you come here, hopefully you'll hear sermons that are different. You'll come to hear a different message. We're not clanging symbols of self here. We're glorifying Jesus Christ. Holiness is to glorify Jesus Christ. And so I hope that you came to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come today acknowledging our sinfulness, knowing, Lord, that there is no righteousness in us, there is no goodness in us. We are what we are by the grace of God. And that holiness that is to be found in us is not our own. It's what's been implanted into us. It's been given to us by the Holy Spirit in our regeneration. And then we are justified by our faith in Jesus Christ where we are declared to be not guilty of our sins. And from there we are sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ and we are to live holy lives before you. Thank you, Lord, for the message that we learned today that God is holy, that God is all that we ever aspire to be, that Jesus Christ and His life and what He did, the example that He set for us, is what we all, the only thing that we want to be. We want to glorify Christ in every way, every day, in every way. Glorify Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to some heart today. In this Christmas season, there'll be many people that will think on Jesus Christ that otherwise would think nothing at all of Him. Lord, we pray that somewhere, somehow, in churches like this, that they will hear the truth of who Jesus is and come and give their lives to Him and let the Holy Spirit do through them what He's done for us who are believers in Jesus. Help us today to be faithful to Your Word, to be a church like Philadelphia, to be one that You commend, that You'll come to us and say, You are the church that I want You to be. Help us to be holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.